this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of John, chapter 14. I am taking a brief pause from our series on deacons because, as I stated earlier when we started, about half our church is gone, quite a few, easily 15 to 20 families are traveling, camping, and I didn't want to um, speak on deacons when they weren't here since it's such an integral part of the next steps our church will be taking. Now, this Wednesday is our business meeting. I hope you can make it out. And this Wednesday, you'll be nominating those deacons, but I'm not going to, um, that's not going to be the only day. That's going to kind of, you might say, the kickoff of the nominations. I'll allow our folks to nominate, continue nominating deacons for the next two weeks. So Wednesday will be the first set of nominations. And then if those that aren't here at the business meeting or, or didn't really prayerfully consider who to nominate, um, you can still do so if you are a member. You must be a member of Meriden Hills Baptist Church to nominate deacons. And for the next two weeks, we'll do those nominations, and then we'll hold a, a vote on the deacons in September after I've finished the series that I've been preaching. Just one more message to go on uh, deacons and, and how God would use them in our church. Now, John chapter 14, I was considering what it is I would preach today. I didn't want to start a new book. As you know, I'm an expository preacher. I find a book. I start preaching through it till we get to the end. I don't know if you've known this, but in the last seven years, we have now together as a church, if you've been here with me from the beginning, have finished almost every single New Testament book. We've preached through almost every one of them. There is only a small amount left that we have not preached through. Uh, Revelation, I preached through on Wednesday nights when I first became pastor seven years ago, and I'll be starting that again sometime later this year. I'm finishing up the Gospels of Christ, and when I finish the Gospels of Christ, uh, we will go right into the revelation uh, given to us by the Apostle John. And so that will be at least a year. I do not finish that series in months. That is like a year series. There's a lot to deal with when you look at the Old Testament prophets and what they talk about and so on. So the book of Revelation we deal with on Wednesday nights, And then I also, the life of Christ and the Gospels, I also was preaching on Wednesday night. So it's essentially the epistles, the letters that we found that the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter and others wrote. Those are the books I preach Sunday mornings. And then I deal with the Old Testament books, mostly in life group. I I preach through multiple prophets and other books uh, in Sunday morning. So we're going to start repeating some of these epistles probably in the next two to three years. I still have some to finish, but if you've been here in seven years, after nine years, you'll find me re-preaching some of the books you've already heard, but hopefully after nine years, you're ready to hear it again. And that's just kind of how I preach. So I don't normally do what I'm doing this morning, where I pick a topic, which is a topical message, and preach the topic. I've told you my heart before. I don't do that because you can get in trouble doing that. You can find yourself preaching the same 10 topics over and over and over again. You can find yourself preaching topics based off of a conversation that you had with someone that didn't go well, and now you're preaching to that one person, and everyone else is just a spectator. And that's not really what I want either. So I I, I really am cautious when it comes to topical messages. But inevitably today is going to be one just due to the nature of what's going on with the summer. And I prayerfully considered and believe that this is a message that you, I hope, will benefit from, is basically my heart. I don't often get to do this because if I'm preaching expository messages, I'm mostly just preaching God's heart, which is really what it should be, right? That shouldn't be the, the, the rare thing. That should be the normal thing, that the preacher is preaching the heart of God, not his own heart. But God has allowed me, he's given me peace today to preach my heart. And what I, I'm really thrilled to do that because, again, it's not something I do often. So I feel excited today, more so than I normally do, to be able to open up my heart to you in a way that I really haven't done to this congregation on a Sunday morning in as long as I can remember. 
I know that when I became pastor back in 2016, I preached through my heart. I essentially preached a series of messages on my heart, what I wanted to be as a pastor, what I wanted to do as a pastor. But I'm looking at the faces right here, and easily in this room, um, 90% of you weren't here when I preached you that sermon, that series. Most of you have started coming after that time. So John chapter 14 and verse 15. Let's read this verse. If you love me, keep my commandments. There it is. That's the starting point of where I'd like to take you today. The title of this morning's message is why. I think that a longer title might be what is your why? What motivates you? What keeps you going every day? I would venture to guess that for a lot of you, your why is your family. I would say easily, at least in the United States of America, I'm not really familiar with other cultures, I would imagine it's similar, but easily in the United States of America, with the people that I've dealt with, easily a far majority of people, their why is their family. Men, women, doesn't matter. And by the way, even men who maybe found themselves in a place of divorce, they still love their children and their why is still to help their children, many of them. I'm not saying all. It's not the case for everyone, but a high majority, I would say, of people, and I would hope and assume Christians, their why their motivation, what gets them out of bed, what allows them to continue moving forward is their family. Of course, there are always those that may say it's their family, but it's not really true. Their why is the mighty dollar, money, and the things that money can buy them. Their motivation is the home that they want to own or the home they already do own and they want to build onto. Their motivation is to upgrade their vehicles. Their motivation is to, to own a boat once they have the vehicles and the home. And then once they have the boat, their motivation is to buy another next nice toy. Essentially, their motivation, their why, are the cares of this world. The things that this life wants to offer you. Now, the Bible warns us about people who find themselves going down that road. If you are a Christian and you find yourself motivated by the cares of this world, what will the cares of this world do? What will the money and the possessions that money can buy do to the Christian's spiritual condition? It will choke it. We're told in the parable of the sower and the seed that some seed was thrown into good ground. But unfortunately, there was also weeds there. And Christ describes the weeds as the cares of this world. And the weeds came up and choked the life out of that growing plant, that believer. And that believer did not display fruit because the cares of this world turned their, their focus from God to something else. When your motivation is the cares of this world, you actually are likely to attain it. Not all do. Many find that that road is just the carrot on the stick that you never can get a hold of. But some actually grab the carrot only to find that when they have the carrot, it's rotten. It's not what they thought it was. What they really wanted was what they left behind to chase the carrot. But they can't go back in time. And they've lost what was really important to them, chasing the carrot, the cares of this world. Now, some people, their motivation is just success. They just want to be good at everything. They want to be the best at everything. Doesn't matter what it is. They may not have ever done it before in their life. And if they're going to do it the first time, they want to beat everyone who's done it for 10 years. You teach them a new card game, they want to win. You teach them to play cornhole, they never played before, they want to win. Doesn't matter what it is they do, their motivation is to be the victor, the one on top. The one that everyone looks at and praises and claps and says, you are amazing, two thumbs up. That's their motivation. They want the awe, the worship, the respect of their fellow man. 
What is your motivation? Have you, have you asked yourself that recently? And when you answer it, are you being honest with yourself? Today, I'd like to preach for you my motivation. A lot of folks ask me on a fairly regular basis. They say, Pastor Russ, how is it you can do so many things? Why is it that, why is it that you do so many things? Pastor Russ, why do you coach and teach and are you a principal and you're the lead pastor? Pastor Russ, why do you get involved with so many parts of the school when, you know, you don't need to, you don't have to? There are reasons for what I do. Some of them are practical. If I don't, it doesn't get done. Well, then don't let it get done. I get that. But there's a bigger motivation than just the fact that it needs to be done. I started this morning by giving you John 14, 15, and that is the foundation for my motivation. Did you notice it was not my family? Oh, I love my family dearly. I would die for my family. But that's not the foundation for what I do. It is not my family. You say, Pastor Russ, that doesn't really sound good. I mean, shouldn't family come first? Well, I don't know. Is God included in that list? Because if God's included, then no, family should not come first. Shouldn't family be the foundation? Oh, I thought Christ was like the foundation, right? And then family's on top of that. Here's the problem, folks. When we make family our everything, when you lose your family, you lose everything. You say, well, if I lose my family, then what's the point of living? And that is exactly the point I'm trying to make. You see, losing your family isn't just lost through death. Sometimes we lose our family because our kids grow up and move out of the house. And for a lot of people, they've lost their family and they now have nothing. There are a variety of ways where you might feel like you've lost your family. Your child might be living in your house, but they go to the room every day, they close the door, and you don't see them for more than half an hour every day, and you feel like you've lost your child. Right? If your foundation for everything you do and what you live for is your family, you will not be able to help your family because your loss of your family is destroying who you are. And you can't help people when you're destroyed. You need to have a stronger foundation than your family so you can help your family if you find that you're losing your family. The foundation is Christ. My foundation is Christ. My why, the why of what I do, number one, because I love God. That's my first reason right there. Now, I love God because God loved me first. We'll talk about that. But I love God. My second reason is I love people. And my third reason is I want people to love God like I love God. There it is, folks. That's my motivation. You say, where is your family in that? My family benefits from that motivation. I love God, and I love people. That includes my family. And I want people to love God like I love God, and I want my family to love God like I love God. I want my wife to love God like I love God. I want my children to love God like I love God. But you see, my children aren't the foundation. My children are benefiting from the foundation. My marriage is not the foundation, is not my identity. I don't have my identity in my wife, in my marriage, in our 17 and a half years of marriage. That is not what makes me who I am. Our 17 years and a half marriage benefits from who I am. And I am a man that loves God, that loves people, and wants people to love God like I love God. Why do I teach math? Because I love math? Well, actually, I do love math. But that's not the reason that I teach math. I teach math because I love God, I love people, and I want people to love God like I love God. You say, Pastor Russ, how can teaching math help people to love God like you love God? You know what? When you teach math in a way that helps people understand math, when most don't understand math, when you can help them connect those numbers and their eyes are open to things they never saw before, they will have a connection with you they didn't have before. And I am able to build a connection with my students in my math class that I could not build anywhere else outside of math class. And I take that connection and guess what I do with it? I point it right back to me. No, I don't. Because I love God, I love people, and I want people to love God. I take the connection that I grow in math, 
and I point them right back to God. As a math teacher, I'm able to help people love God. Obviously, I'm a Bible teacher. I do the same there. I've been a third grade teacher. I've been a middle school, high school teacher. It doesn't matter what I teach. I'm looking to grow connections with people so that through those connections, I can help them love God like I love God. You see, folks, you don't have to be a teacher. You don't have to be a pastor. If your motivation is you love God, if your motivation is you love people, and if your motivation is you want people to love God like you love God, then you can be a baker. You could be a construction worker. You can be a business owner. You can be a politician. Imagine that. You can be anything and accomplish those three things with the people that God has placed in your life. You can be a stay-at-home mom. You can be a dad that works from home. You don't interact with a lot of people, but when you do, the connections you've made with those few people are so strong, the people you know start loving the God you love like you do. That's my motivation. What's yours? Let's see the verses that I have here this morning to preach through this motivation. We've seen John 14, 15. We love God. Letter A, a relationship without love isn't a relationship. It's a burden. A relationship that lacks love, stop calling it a relationship. You're lying to yourself. You're enabling them to abuse you. Because if there's no love in the relationship, you are using them, they are using you. Just call it what it is. It's manipulation. It's self-indulgence. You want something from them. Maybe you want something from them sexually. Maybe you want something from them financially. Maybe you want something from them emotionally. I was talking with a young woman and she said, Pastor Russ, I'm a teacher. She doesn't go to this school. She does not teach at this school. She says, Pastor Russ, I'm a teacher at a school, and I find that I have this, uh, this problem where I struggle with, you know, how do you control the students? How do you get them to love you? How do you get them to like you? Because I, I want to be in charge of the classroom. I want to control the classroom, but I don't want to be this person that's, that all the kids hate and that they, they act right because they're afraid. And I said, well, here's the trick. Students who love their teacher are more prone to respect their teacher, are more likely to follow their teacher. This is the same for parents, by the way, as well. But I said the problem with that path, there's a danger down that path, is that a teacher or a parent who wants to these students to love them and to like them will actually start needing the love and needing to be liked by the students for their own personal fulfillment. I said when you go down that path where you need their love, most students may miss it, but some will see it, and they will start manipulating you as the teacher because they know they've got you. They know that if, if, you, if they stop loving you, you'll do anything to get it back. And they will use that against you. It's the same for moms. A lot of moms, the thing they want more than anything else in this world is to be loved by their kids. And as soon as your kids know that, if they are rascals, will use it against you. And we've all got a little bit of a rascal in us, Right? Your kids aren't perfect, mine aren't perfect, but every kid is capable of using that against their mom at some point. And when you need to be loved by people, people will use that to control you. So here's what I told this teacher. I said, find fulfillment in love outside your classroom. Find fulfillment and love from Christ. Find fulfillment and love from your family, from your parents. This young woman uh, was still young enough to not be married. I said, find fulfillment from friends who you can trust, who will, who, are, who will offer you a healthy love. I said, find complete fulfillment in love from them, and then walk into your classroom not needing to be loved by your students. 
So now you will love them and gain their love, but they won't use their love against you or manipulate you with it because you have it somewhere else. There's a lot of you in this room right now that are in relationships, family relationships, friend relationships, working relationships, and you need to be loved. You're empty inside. And you are allowing people to fill you with love that don't really love you. They're using that pseudo love, that fake love, to control you. And you are so desperate for it, you're letting them. Find fulfillment of love from Christ first. Then look for it from people who are not looking to control you. Then offer it to everyone else in the hopes they will love you in return so you can point them to God, but you don't need them to love you in return. Because a relationship without love is a burden. And God wants us to love him. God does not want to be a burden to us. God does not want to be a burden to you. Is your Christian life a burden? Does it weigh you down? Is it heavy on your shoulders? When you come to church, is it like, oh, man, I have to go to church? Is that how you feel? When you, when you are uh, doing something for the Lord, are you doing it because of obligation? You know that you need to, and you're going to do it for that reason. Folks, you don't love God. Because if you loved God, it would not be a burden. Because a relationship with love is not a burden. Oh, it has its issues, it has its pain, but it's not a heavy weight on your shoulders. You can gauge your, 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 your love by the burden you feel in that relationship with that person. Number two, letter B, excuse me. Guilty obligation is a poor replacement for willing sacrifice. Christ says here in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. God is not telling us to keep his commandments out of obligation. He's not telling us to keep his commandments out of fear. God is not saying, keep my commandments or else. God is saying, one reason, keep my commandments, because you love me. If you love God, then you will obey God. Do not replace obedience out of love for obedience out of obligation. Don't do it. That's when the burden comes. When you replace love with obligation, you lose love. And when you lose love, the relationship ends and the burden begins. And the obligation will only take you so far when the burden keeps getting heavier and heavier. And that is when in human relationships, we walk away. We walk away from human relationships where love is lost because the burden is too heavy. But Christians also walk away from God from his church, from his kingdom. They walk away from truth. Why? Because they foolishly stopped loving, embraced obligation, and by stopping their love for God, they ultimately started down the path of their own self-destruction. When you lose your love for God, you've lost everything. Your motivation needs to be, foundationally, I love God. Let her see. Love is not a feeling, it's a lifestyle. You say, well, Pastor Russ, I don't feel like I love God anymore. Who cares? Why does that even matter? Emotions do not drive the Christian. The Holy Spirit drives the Christian. And as the Holy Spirit drives and directs, as truth from God's word corrects and directs, our emotions go along for the ride. 
It's because one of two things will happen. Your feelings will control you or you will control your feelings. Those are the only two options when it comes to emotions. And when your feelings control you, buckle up, you're in for a rough ride that ends in the track cut off and the cart flying off the track into oblivion. Your emotions are a poor master. Your emotions do not have your success in mind. Your emotions, if they were personified, would be selfish, prideful, self-seeking, self-indulgent. Your emotions don't care about your future. Your emotions say, me, 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 they're spoiled. Stop feeding your emotions. Stop giving your emotions control of the wheel. And say, no, emotions, you're in the back seat. You're, in, you're, you're with me. You're taking a ride. You're not driving. Where I go, you will follow. Like it or not, deal with it. Sometimes the emotions won't like it, and they'll kick and scream. But you don't change what you're doing. Your emotions will calm down eventually. They'll cry themselves to sleep eventually. And your emotions will eventually realign. Love is not a feeling. You look at 1 Corinthians 13. We are listed out for us. All the things that love is, not one of them is a feeling. It's a lifestyle. It's a way of life that you choose to treat people, most importantly, God. It's a way of life that you choose to illustrate your choices, your relationship with Christ. It is not, I'm in love, I'm out of love, I like, I don't like. Those are all emotions. Put them aside and focus on truth. What is the foundation for your why? If it's money, you're in trouble. If it's family, you're also in trouble. If it's the praise of men, you're in trouble still. Any foundation outside of I love God, the very bottom, strongest foundation, is one that will crumble. Once you love God first, and once you find complete fulfillment in your love of God, you can now go to number two. And you can add to that, I love people. Now, the problem with I love people, as I told this teacher, is if you make I love people the foundation and you don't make I love God the foundation, then the I love people will come that will eventually result in I want to be loved by people. And then those people will control you. Those people will manipulate you. You have to have a foundational love from someone that will not use it against you. And there is only one person you're guaranteed for that ever to happen. His name is Christ. When you find fulfillment of love from Christ, you can start loving people and not needing them to love you in return. Let's go to 1 John chapter 4, which is actually where we'll be the rest of this morning. 1 John chapter 4. Now, the penmen of the book, the, the Apostle John, as well as the book 1 John, are one and the same. So we're looking at the same man who God used to inspire these truths regarding love. Although they're not written in the same book, they're written by the same fellow, given the truths by God. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 20. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God loveth his brother also. 
God says, all right, your foundation is love me. Well, then the very next piece has to be, there is no option. It must be you love people. Because we just read in 1 John from the same guy who wrote 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. He's just repeating what God says. He now goes to 1 John and says, but you can't claim to love God if you hate people. It doesn't work that way. If the foundation of your why, if the motivation for what you do every day is I love God, why do you get out of bed every day? Because you love God and there's things to do. Why do you go to work? Because I love God and I have a life that needs to be lived in glory to him. Why do you take care of your family? Because I love God. Why do you take care of yourself? Because I love God. Why do you dress nice? Well, it could be because you love yourself, but it could also be I love God. I've told you my philosophy of why I dress. I don't dress to bring attention to myself. I dressed to eliminate attention from myself. Most of you would not be able to, I would doubt any of you, probably even my wife, could not list on a piece of paper what I wore the last two Sundays. That's purposeful. I don't wear things that would stick in your head and say, wow, Russ looks either really good or really bad, one way or the other. I don't want you thinking about what I wear. I wear what I wear so that really your eyes just go right past me and don't stop. Now, I could dress a lot nicer than this. I could put on a tie. I could put on a tux. I could wear black and white. And you know what? You'd remember that, wouldn't you? If I asked you next Sunday what I wore last Sunday, you'd say, you wore a tuxedo. It's kind of weird. You'd remember that. <laughs> if I wore shorts, sandals, and a T-shirt, same thing would happen. If I say what I wear last Sunday, you'd say, you wore shorts, sandals, and a T-shirt. It was a little weird, right? So I could wear up or down and cause you to think about what I'm wearing rather than what God is saying to you. My motivation for what I wear, no matter where I go, is I don't want people's eyes stopping at me. I want them going like this. Not here. So, yes, you can dress in a way that says, I love God. And I want what I wear to be a reflection of God. Not in the sense that I only wear nice things to reflect his holiness. That's, that's ridiculous. No. I wear what I wear so that people will love God and not me. We love people. Why? Because you can't love God if you don't love people. They come together. Letter A. Our love for people is the barometer of our love for God. Now, I said on the last point that you can gauge how much you love God by whether serving him and living for him is a burden or not. Now, I'll tell you this. When I was a young man as a teenager, Christianity was such a burden, I didn't even bother. I went to church because I was forced they couldn't force me to listen, though. I would sit uh, in the pew, and I would fill in the circles with my pencil on all the little O's. Whatever was an O on a letter, I'd fill them in. I'd draw pictures. I'd fall asleep. My parents could bring me there bodily. They could not force me to listen spiritually because Christianity was a burden to me because I did not love God. The moment that I fostered a love for God, no one had to force me to go, and no one had to force me to listen. I went to church on my own. My parents weren't there. My friends didn't go. I went because I wanted to. When Christianity is no longer a burden, you can be assured your love for God is in a healthy place. Now, what's the gauge of our barometer for our love for God? Not only is it a burden, but also the second one, our love for people. That's the second way you can gauge your love of God. The first one, is our relationship with God a burden? Then you do not love God. Second one, do we hate people? then you do not love God. Those are two great ways to determine where your love is for God. Our love for people, the barometer of our love for God. So how about it, folks? Do you love people? They say, well, people sure are hard to love. Yes, they are. And you know what your problem is? Your love is defined by something called conditional love. 
You only love people when they deserve it. And you decide who deserves it and who doesn't and why they deserve it and why they don't. They're good people, therefore I love them. They do things for me, therefore I love them. They love me, therefore I love them. That's all conditional love. That is not what we're talking about in either of these books. God, in 1 Corinthians 13, gives us unconditional love. It does not matter who they are, what they are, or why they are. You love them. Why? Because God loves them. And if you love God, you love who God loves. And God loves the world. It does not mean that God loves the things of the world. God does not love the sin of the world. God loves the people in the world. And if you love God, you love the world. You know why it is easy for me to love the children of your families, your teens, your children? And I do. I truly, truly love the children in our school, and I love the children of our church. You know why it's easy? Because I love their parents. If I love their parents, I'm going to love their children. You can't do one without the other. You can't have a friend and say, man, I sure love you, but I hate your kid. <laughs> that relationship is over. Don't ever invite yourself to their house again, and you won't ever be invited again, right? And yet here we are to God. God, I love you, but I sure hate your world. And God's like, what are you doing? You don't understand how this works. I love your kids. And by the way, I don't love you because I love your kids. I love, you. I love your kids because I love you. And then I love you because I love your God. It goes down. That's the love of a Christian. And that is my motivation for what I do. I love people. Therefore, I love their children. Letter B, those who take, excuse me, those who dwell, I, I gave you the wrong one. That's my fault, guys. Forget that. Those who dwell in self-love, I added an extra word. Those who dwell in self-love, um, what did I mean? Trying to say here. Those who dwell in self-love uh, and those who, there, there, there are those who dwell in self-love and there are those who dwell in selfless love. Now, they're just putting exactly on the screen what I told them to put. It is not their fault. That is purely mine. Not sure. That must have been late at night, and I wasn't thinking. <laughs> there are two types of people here. I'm going to break it down for you. There are two types of people here. I, in my head, it made sense when I wrote it. <laughs> There's the first person who dwells in self-love. Everything about them is about them. Every relationship they have is about them. It's self-love. And, 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 and the moment that that relationship attacks what they love, which is who? Themselves. That relationship is in danger. I'm not saying they cut it off because they might maintain it from a distance in the hopes they can restore it back to what it was, which was what? You give them what they want, self-love. There are those who dwell in self-love. Do not be one of them. And then there are those who dwell in selfless love. Those who say, I'm going to give my love to others. I'm not here for what you can give me. I am here for what I can give you. Which one are you? Are you a leech? A parasite? Because the world doesn't want to join a congregation of parasites who are only here to take and take. My motivation for what I do, my motivation for why I get out of bed, is I want to live out selfless love. I want to give my life 
two people. First, my God. Second, my family. They're part of that group. Third, my church family. And from there, it's anyone else in my life. I want to give to them. I don't want to take from them. And let her see. We love people. Love is not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Let me read that verse again, verse 21. And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. This is not just a nice idea. It's not a suggestion that God makes. God says, I command you to love people. But why do we obey God's commands? Out of obligation? No, because the moment you obey people out of obligation, they see it, they don't want it, it's pointless. We don't obey any of God's commands, including loving people out of obligation. We obey all of God's commands out of love for God. If I told you I love you because I have to, you would say, don't bother. If I said I love you because I love God, that makes sense to you. You can accept that. And that's exactly the truth. I love you because I love God. God loves you through me. I allow him to. It's a command, yes, but it's one I willingly obey because I love God. Because the moment I go from that to obligation, my Christianity becomes what? What is it? A burden. I do not want to live the life of a burdened believer. I've seen those guys. I've seen those preachers. I've heard them preach. They might be good at communicating truth, but I've seen what it does to their families, the burdened preacher. I've seen what it does to the relationships in the church, the burdened preacher. They might be great orators. They might be able to preach better than anyone else, but all their relationships are falling apart because they are burdened men and their wives are burdened women because they lost their first love. You might be a good parent in the sense of you take care of your kids' needs. You give them more than they need. You give them more than they want. Everything they could possibly imagine, you provide for them. But your life as a parent is one of burden because you've lost your love for your children. Yes, you love them, but it's a selfish love, not a selfless love. My motivation for what I do, I love God. I love people. And number three, I want people to love God like I love God. I can do anything, anything, and accomplish all three of these things. I can talk to anyone. I can be anywhere in any capacity. God has called me to become a preacher. God has called me to be a pastor. God has allowed me to be a teacher and a principal. I'm fine with all those things. But if God said, Russ, today we're going to change things and you're going to go into a completely different profession, I would say, no problem, God, because I can still do all those three things no matter where you take me. No matter what I do, I can do these three things. I'm very glad that I get to do these three things attached to my job description. We want to love God. Yes, but we want people to love God. First John, let's go back to the, the verse previous, verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. I don't love God because I'm a good person. My love is a response to his love towards me. And if you want people to love God like you love God, then you can't scare them into love. You must help them see 
God's love for them and show them how to respond back to God's love just like you responded to God's love. But how can people see God's love if they don't see it through you? You are the book that tells of God's love. You say, no, it's not Pastor Russ. It's the Bible. Yeah, and how many of your friends read the Bible? Be honest. How many of your Christian friends read the Bible? Come on now. I'm not going to embarrass you. How many of you read the Bible? (laughs) You are the book that they're looking at. You know, the Bible actually gives you a name, calls you an ambassador. Same idea. It's the fact that people are essentially going to know about God through you. Whether it's reading a book or speaking as a representative of God, you are the one they're going to see God through. And if they have a tainted version of God, could it be you? If they hate God, could it be you? If they don't know God, could it be you? Do you want people to love God like you love God? Letter A. Not everything we do is important, but the people we do it for are important. There have been many days over the years, as much as I love math, I can't say that I love teaching the same concept to the same students who after two weeks don't get it. That's not really my love. I love math. But I'm kind of done with, you know, division of fractions after the first day. I don't want to teach it for two weeks. And after two weeks, the kids are still failing the quiz. It's like, what's going on here, okay? But why do I do it? Division of fractions, how important is it? Very, very unimportant. With technology and calculators, how to divide fractions is of limited value to anyone. Why do I teach it? Well, I'll give you a brief explanation of math as a whole. I teach math not because I want kids to know how to divide and multiply and do fractions. I teach math not because algebra is going to be a part of every part of their life because almost, it's not almost, it's every year. And almost every month, a student inevitably raises their hands and say, why do we need to learn this? I have a computer. I have a tablet. I have a calculator. Why do I need to learn this? And I say, I'm teaching it to you. I'm teaching math to you, not because you need to know this, because the truth is most of you will not, and those who do, you'll have other devices that can help you come to the same answer. I say, I am teaching you how to think. You see, math exercises the brain like weights exercise the muscles. And I say, I don't care if you'll ever use algebra again. You will use the ability to think again. And that is what I'm teaching you in math class, how to think logically, how to think critically. I mean, it's a point now where the students last year literally got me a T-shirt that says critical thinking because I always say, say, think critically. Think crit-. They made a T-shirt out of it and gave it to me. So I'm teaching our students how to think. It's really hard sometimes to teach students how to think, especially middle school students how to think. You wonder, is it possible for them to think? It is difficult. Why? (laughs) I'm sorry, Jake. It wasn't you specifically, man. It's middle schoolers. You're in ninth grade now, though, so you're out of it now, right? Okay. All right, Jake's like a bunch of middle schoolers, last year kids. (laughs) It's hard. Why do I do it? Is division of fractions really important? No. But the kids in my class are. And so I will go to school every day. And I will teach math every day to kids who hate math every day because those kids are important. Why? Because I love them. Why? Because I love their parents. Why? Because I love their God. That's my motivation. I will vacuum the rooms. I will clean toilets. I will do whatever needs to be done. Many things many of you do not know about. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the people I'm doing them for are important to me. Moms, it's not the dishes that matter. They're going to be dirty tomorrow. It's the people who are eating off of them that are important. 
It's not the laundry. Oh, man, it's definitely not the laundry. Your kids wear it one time and think it's dirty because it touched their body for two seconds. They didn't even wear it. They tried it on and threw it in the dirty hamper because they tried it on. The laundry is not important. It's the kids who are important. It's not your house that will be dirty 20 minutes after you clean it. It's the people who live in it, moms. That's your motivation right there. The people. And when you love God first, when you love people second, and when you want people to love God like you love God, the things you do for them allows a stronger connection with them so you can point them to the God who loves them. When you do not have a connection with your kids, not only can you not point them to God, they will likely run from everything you love. You love God? They will not love God just because you love God. You love church? They will stop going to church just because you go to church. They will do the opposite. They will become the opposite of who you are out of spite because you do not love them. But when you do love them and that child knows they're loved by you, there will be things that will warm your heart when they mimic you. And what can they mimic that is more important than your love for God? Letter B. People are more likely to love God when they are loved by God's people. Why does the world hate God? Could it be because the world thinks God's people hate them? And is it possible that's actually true in some churches? Oh, it's most definitely true in some churches. We have mistaken people for the choices they make. We have replaced the real enemy, Satan, his demons, with the people he's manipulating, the unsaved. And our hatred for wickedness has been transferred to people. And when Christians hate people, there's no way you're going to help them love God like you love God. It's not going to happen. You're wasting your time. Now, referring to the story for the third time, like that teacher, if you love people before you love God, then you will do whatever they want you to do. You will walk away from God to love those people. You will walk away from his word. You will abandon truth. You will change your theology because you love people. You will say, well, you know, that lifestyle, it's okay because, you know, I love you and so I'll accept who you are because you love people. Oh, your choices, don't worry about it. I love you no matter what you do. Now, that is true, but the way you're presenting it is basically stating I will change who I am because I love you. Now, are you helping them love God? No, you're actually loving the world more. You're not changing them, they're changing you. You need to find fulfillment in your love from God first so that when you go to people who need love, you can offer to them without needing it back from them and they can't use it against you. And then as you love them unconditionally, no strings attached, you need nothing from them, you want nothing from them. And you love them because you love God. When those eyes are opened to your love for them, they will say, tell me more about this God who you love. And then you can help people love God like you love God. Let her see and we're done. My motivation for what I do. Love is not a reaction. 
it is a response. A reaction is an emotional move. A response is a move of the mind, a move of the will. Some of you only know always how to react. Your kids do something nice and you smile. Your kids make a mistake and you frown. Your friend does something you wanted and you give them a hug. Your friend doesn't respond to your text in five minutes and you send them a text you should not send them. You are only always reacting to everyone in your life. That's not love. It is selfish. It is prideful. It is unbiblical. It is ungodly. When you are only always reacting to everyone in your life, you are not going to help them love God like you love God. You are going to hurt them. You're going to traumatize them. You are going to destroy them. Love is a response. Not once, not once in my 11 years of teaching have I ever yelled at our students. I don't yell at them because I choose not to react to them. Not once have I ever yelled at their parents, and I've had parents in my office yell at me. I've had parents call me names, curse my name. I've had parents swear at me, and not once have I ever reacted. I've chosen to respond. Calm, love. I don't react to people. You know why? Because I love people. I respond to people. I'm not telling you this to brag. I'm telling you this to let you know it's possible. You can do it. You can choose to love with the will rather than react with the emotions. Stop. I'm not saying stop feeling. I'm saying stop letting your feelings control your relationships with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your God. Let truth guide your mind and your will and respond to that truth. My motivation for what I do going forward, you now know, it doesn't matter what it is, whether it's with people, interpersonal, whether it's with things, it doesn't matter. I love God, I love people, and I want people to love God like I love God. And the things that I do aren't really that important. I know they're not. I know for a fact by the end of the month, most of my math students will forget much of what I said about a particular concept let alone by the end of their graduation. They're not going to remember at 22 what they learned in Algebra 1. I accepted that long ago, and I'm okay with that. You know what they will remember? Me. They'll remember me. And when they remember me, I want it to be good memories. And when they remember me at 21, I want them to automatically start thinking about God. That's my goal, folks. Not that my math students will remember everything I taught them about math. I know that's not possible. But that my math students will remember everything I showed them about God. And I have the opportunity to spend time with the next generation for over 40 hours a week. What a privilege that I have. I'm so blessed to be able to apply my motivation in such a real way but you can too. Maybe not with students, but there are people that you're with over 40 hours a week. They will not remember every conversation you had, but they will, will they remember you 
And when they do, will they remember how you showed them God? Let's pray. Father, I pray for your people. I thank you for the privilege it was to preach my heart this morning. Thank you for letting me do that. And I pray that your people would be challenged to reflect on their own motivations, their own heart. And if it's not going to mirror my motivations exactly, I pray that they would come up with their own motivations that can be found in Scripture, that can reflect truth, that can get them out of bed every day doing what needs to be done for your glory and for the souls of men. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.